Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hi, y'all. Welcome to Punching Out. My name is Noah, and I'm joined by Anita. Hello. And I don't know if you don't know this, but there's a presidential election going on. And whoever wins it, in conjunction with the Congress that will simultaneously be elected next year, will certainly be in a strong position to have a heavy impact on the lives of workers and labor relations in this country. Now, you may be new to Punching Out. We generally define ourselves as a show that is pro-worker, pro-union, pro-labor in general. So there are certain candidates that we will not be discussing on today's show. We would like to talk to you, at the very least, about the candidates who, well, if nothing else, publicly say that they're in favor of unions and workers. And who better to start with than self-proclaimed union man, Joe Biden? (laughs) Self-proclaimed. That's about all he's got. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So Joe Biden has been running for president pretty much since he was elected to Congress in the 70s. Mm -hmm. He's currently pretty much the conventional candidate, wouldn't you say, Anita, for the Democratic nomination? It's unfortunate, and I think it is born out of a lot of nostalgia for the, quote, you know, good old days of Barack Obama when moderates and centrists felt like this is Bush is over. We can go back to sleep, and so Biden is not. He's not really uh, to thank for that necessarily, <laughs> that sentiment even. And uh, I think a lot of people are just playing more comfortable uh, with his persona and his Uncle Joe sort of you know cultivated personality. And I think that that's kind of why people gravitate toward him. It really isn't about his deeds so much as this sort of you know, persona, this, you know, the guy who would park a car on the front lawn kind of thing like from The Onion where they yeah. did a lot of that Joe Biden goofing and, you know. that That's exactly what I was going to say. He's yeah. the first candidate, the first presidential candidate created by The Onion. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's really unfortunate. Thank you again. <sighs> uh, what is that, life imitating art? So Yeah. But the reason we're talking about Biden talking and, and saying he's a union guy is that the International Association of Firefighters, which has about 300,000 members, that's mm-hmm. not tiny, no, yeah. endorsed him after they actually stayed neutral in 2016. Now, chances are good that this is because the president of the IAFF is a Biden ally who openly said that Biden should have run in 2016. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe there's a pretty simple explanation for this, but it definitely tells you that Biden is, despite the fact that his credentials come from a very moderate and not necessarily pro-labor wing of the party, he's definitely trying to to position himself as the most pro-worker candidate in the race. Yeah, I find that awfully convenient, um, considering his stance on pro-TPP, he's pro-NAFTA, and his defense of the credit card companies over the years, especially since, you know, they're mostly out of Delaware. So, I mean, that it kind of shows you where his bread has been buttered. And for him to now turn and say, oh, well, I'm so pro-union. Yeah, maybe he has always been saying that. But once again, it's uh, words and not deeds. Yeah. We should probably mention, by the way, for a lot of this, we're relying on an article by Russell Berman for The Atlantic called Biden is betting on unions. Mm. They might bet on someone else. Uh, this article came out April 30th of this year. And it basically just kind of gives you a lowdown on what unions are saying about the union man. And, well... That's a direct quote. He says, if I may... Go for it. Yeah. He says, quote, "I I make no apologies. I am a union man, period. Okay. Well, once again, he makes no apologies. He also made no apologies to Anita Hill. He also makes no apologies for his quirky, touchy-feely behavior. 
He literally he said does he has not make apologies. He he literally said he's never done anything wrong hey. in his life. Uh, like who does that sound like? Uh, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's not to trash the guy's personality. I mean, I'll be honest. I'm sure he's a friendly guy when you know him. But his policies, yeah, but his policies are a no-go. They're a non-starter. In a lot of ways, um, he's sort of positioned himself to be coronated. He thinks that he's, once again, like the Hillary Clinton problem. I've put in my time. I've paid all the lip service, and I've greased a lot of, you know, palms. It's time for, you know, me. I don't like that kind of attitude. I think it needs to be earned. Yeah, I I distinctly remember somewhere between 2012 and 2016. I can't remember which of the like baseball pundits that then went into politics this mm-hmm. was. I'm just going to hazard a guess that it was Nate Silver because oh, it yeah. usually is when oh. this happens. But he was saying something about how it's good that Democrats are finally figuring out that the most effective way to have presidential politics is stop falling in love and start falling in line. And he was saying yeah. this in light of Mitt Romney in 2012. Yeah. But it's like, uh, yes, but the thing is that Republicans could afford to wait for their candidate to come in because all of them were going to give them the same red meat and the voting base knew that. When it comes to the Democrats, there are genuine policy differences, which, Mm -hmm. by the way, we're going to get into between which candidates you pick and what they emphasize. And as far as we know, Biden isn't emphasizing a damn thing. Yeah. I also want to mention that that sounds a little bit like Anna Navarro, who is not mm. a Democrat or, you know, in the party. She's not a leftist. She's a right-wing Republican who often moonlights on more le- left, left-ish kind of media because uh, she can get her voice out there mm-hmm. about the couple of things that bother her policy-wise about Donald Trump in particular. Honestly, if she's if she and Bill Crystal are the ones that can dictate who we choose in our party based on their comfort comfort level, then we are doing something very very wrong because mm-hmm. that man has never been right in his life, I will tell yeah, you. Yeah, crystal ball. Yeah. He's, <laughs> he's like a backwards called. crystal ball. Um, right. So so then the encouraging thing is that well Yes, this firefighters union immediately went in for Biden. Mm, yeah. But everybody else seems to be hanging back. The um the article has quotes from the head of the AFL CIO and the head of the AFT, mm. um, and even the the head of SEO, all of whom are saying that basically they're gonna hang hang back and wait. They're in a pretty yeah. good market right now. And they can yeah. afford to wait for candidates to come to them in a way that they maybe didn't think that they could eight or four years ago. They can let Sanders and Warren and Biden and Harris and all of the other 300,000 Democratic candidates there are actually say, here's what I will do for you, which is a pretty good position to be in if you're a union head. Yeah, I found uh, Randy Weingarten's uh, um, approach to be both a little a little scary, and but mainly supportive of the idea of staying out of it. Um, mm-hmm. The way that Randy put it is that, and this is the part that bothered me, it was said that when they were having issues trying to get to Obama to try and basically uh, have a fair hearing with him, Biden was their go-between. I mean, it almost makes it seem like they owe him favors or, you know, you know, there's, it's just they've known each other for so long, they've been back and forth with the same people for so long, that it can't really be trusted that they're going to be 100% objective. But then again, they did say that they weren't going to make uh, a decision, at least in this article, as reported uh, on that date, so 5.30. We will see uh, if the AFT um, actually, that's the, sorry, that's American Federation of Teachers. I just want to mm-hmm. be clear about that. We will say see if they actually make a decision on who they're going to choose before, I mean, obviously, before the primary, it's going to be a little hectic. Um, and I and I do think Weingarten's being pretty smart about this because mm. her union membership, and this is something else that the article notes, if your union skews uh, older, more male, whiter, mm. um, it's more likely that your members are going to be in favor of Biden because that's a lot of his base. That's but, true. Uh, Randy Weingarten's the head of a teacher's union, 
And teachers in this country, even, even given the shortage, mm. they skew younger, they skew more diverse in mm -hmm. a lot of ways. So she probably can't say anything too complimentary at this stage in the process anyway. Yeah, I, I like to see her being pulled both ways because that to me says that we still have leverage there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And uh, that same for, I think, the head of SEO, Service Employees International Union, mm. is also quoted in the article. And similarly, that's a union that skews younger and more diverse and therefore less likely to immediately throw their support to a prohibitive nominee or, or front runner. Yeah, they have the uh, they have the current uh, leeway to just sort of wait it out now. And they, they don't have to they don't have to marry somebody immediately. You know, they can. Mm -hmm. They can feel it out. They can make someone fight for them. Um, and I do recall hearing in or reading in the article that it was said that, that these unions have the opportunity to wait for a candidate who's willing to say, uh, I am fully and completely behind labor and actually is a labor candidate and willing to back workers instead of just hearing this lip service. And I'm paraphrasing, but... That is part of the deal. Um, and, and we should definitely, anyone in unions should be willing to wait for somebody because there's no rush in this mm -hmm. um, unless, unless they want to endorse the furthest left candidate, which I'm all for personally. I think um, the quote you're paraphrasing, I happen to have it on screen right mm -hmm. now. Um, it's John Weber, who is a spokesman for the AFL-CIO. Mm -hmm. And he says, with a field this massive, which... I mean, he's not kidding. Right. We're in no rush to settle, and we aren't interested in anything short of a full-throated, unapologetic advocate for the labor movement. We shouldn't just be a part of your platform. Unionism should be the lens you use to look at the problems we're facing and the tool you'll use to build a fairer economy. And I feel like that really gets to the heart of it. I yeah. think for a lot of Democratic candidates, whether it's now or later, what you're going to find is that they see unions mainly as kind of a voting block. Yes. And, and that's really it. They see them, and they're not entirely wrong to do so. The article mentions that a lot of union members still mostly take their political directions from their union and, and that if they are strongly identified with it, that's where they're going to get their political news, their info, and that will largely determine how they vote. But I think Democratic candidates often – only view unions in that narrow electoral sense. And as we get sort of further into the primary, you're going to start seeing those battle lines get drawn and see which candidates actually respect unions as like the collectives of workers that they are. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of feel him on that. But then again, I kind of disagree that there's really all that many candidates really out there. I mean, I'm sorry. There are just people who are just going to drop out in the next month or two because they just cannot. You have to have a certain amount of funding. You have to have a certain amount. You have to show a certain amount of donors. There are people that aren't even going to make it to the debates because with 22, 23 people running in this, the truth is it's going to shake down to like two or three people. And I, I mean, yeah, of course, it'll eventually be like that. But there are people right now who are just not on my radar because I just don't even like respect the, their run as being a serious thing. Right. It, it definitely seems like what's happening with the parties now is that it's, it's like getting called up to the majors. Like you can't you could be a senator or a congressman for, I don't know, 20 years or whatever. Mm -hmm. But you're never like at presidential candidate level. You it, it's almost like. You know what happens with like acting careers where maybe mm -hmm. you don't get a lot of work for about 10, 15 years and then you age into a new set of roles that people yeah. want to offer you. Yeah. And so, you know, you get like a Dennis Quaid-like renaissance <laughs> out of nowhere where suddenly everybody's calling you and yeah. run for this and go for that and whatever. I, and I think a lot of people that are being pushed to run are being done by an industry that honestly makes a ton of money off of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, they they go up to people like Bloomberg and 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 uh, uh, Starbucks guy. What's his name? Schwartz or uh, Schultz? Schultz. I got that wrong. Sorry. Uh, they go up to the guy and they're like, "Hey, you know, you're just a big old businessman. Why don't you run against Trump and this and that?" I mean, they're making money off telling that guy that. Speaking of which, <laughs> when's the last time we had a like big conversation about Howard Schultz? I'm glad it that it hasn't like been a, a long time. Back, yeah, right? I'm glad it's been a long time. Yeah, I think right now, well, you know what I think it is, is that 
Um, I'm not the first person to have said this, but you look at somebody like Pete Buttigieg and where his funding is coming from mm-hmm. and who his campaign staff is. And he basically more or less immediately attracted top level talent and a ton of funding that's mm-hmm. supposedly all grassroots, which yeah. I very, very much doubt. Yeah, I mean, it's not like he's the biggest mayor in the state. He's uh, he's in the second, what, a third third largest Indiana city? I have no clue. Okay, see, if you and I don't even know, and we're, you know, policy heads, you know, uh, we should know this stuff about a presidential candidate that people should be taking note of. Mm-hmm. I think my bigger problem with him is that he's just like the West Wing candidate. Like he appeals to the kind of person that wants a president who's smarter than they yeah. are or who... Well, I do, but not like just because they're smarter. Exactly. Like <laughs> it, you want to see what that supposed intelligence mm-hmm. is going to result in. Right. And so far it's resulted in people yelling at me that he speaks eight languages fluently. Oh, well, you know, he speaks eight languages. Yeah, he does. <laughs> I think that's great. That's great. And, you know, it's so funny because there was a candidate in upstate New York right here who is running against Chris Collins last time who, um, you know, I was... Oh, that's right. ...similarly uh, intrigued by his campaign, but he was my my second choice. Um, He ran and... um, and he spoke uh, Korean, I guess, but he couldn't stop talking about it. Right. And it's like, dude, I know you're smart and I think that's really cool you speak Korean... But it it just did not it didn't it didn't track like nobody cares about that I, I'm sorry and he had good policies and everything he was way better than Collins but that's not the kind of like brainy stuff that we're looking for we're looking for somebody who's more policy oriented it's very fancy um, that Pete Buttigieg speaks eight languages it's very fancy that he's like you know Harvard Law Review or whatever I just. Um, I want to be impressed by your policies, man. Well, in that case, let's talk about policies yeah. because, as we said, Biden is, as far as labor is concerned, pretty much all bark and no bite. Mm. So instead, let's talk about somebody who did put out a policy and is running for the Democratic presidential nomination. Allow me to read out a tweet from mm. January 31st of this year at 1.32 p.m. Senator Amy Klobuchar said... The American workforce is changing, and there isn't one path to success. I've introduced bipartisan legislation with uh, Senator Ben Sasse. Oh, ben Sasse, yeah. There's your first problem. To allow people to use tax-advantaged savings accounts oh, I love this. to pay for educational <laughs> expenses like skills training, apprenticeships, and professional development. You know what I love about Amy right now? That she thinks everyone has stock and <laughs> that yeah. everyone has tons of savings. And <laughs> the, the, the current situation is that most people can't scrape together $400 in an emergency, but you want to do some tax advantage savings account. <laughs> tax advantage savings account. It's, it's so cool that, oh. you know, I, I don't know, those of you listening, I don't know what your health insurance situation is, but I have a, I have a health savings account. That's yeah, a tax advantage savings too. account. Um, I'm terrified of touching the stuff. I have had so many hassles, even just trying to get the thing to work, just having a card through it, wow. checking what my balance is, even before it's, even before I get to the point of, you know, trying to use it to do anything, just getting it to function the way that it's supposed to is already a problem. Can you imagine being the person who somehow manages to scrape together a few hundred bucks to take, I don't know, like a welding class or uh, apprentice with uh, an auto repair shop or something. Or a plumber or whatever. And then you can't, you you go to pay the person that just gave you this training and you can't do it because your bank claims that you didn't sign the right paper six months ago when you got the account through them. I mean, the first problem of the tweet is already the word bipartisan is in it. So you already knew this was going downhill. The only but. time that by the only time they do things that are bipartisan is when they are getting together to screw the American people. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty convinced of that. I I I dare you to find otherwise. <laughs> no, I I think on punching out most of us would agree. Yeah, that's a scary word. And then to also partner with the dude who is um, basically his only real complaint with the Trump administration is that they're too rude to people. Oh yeah, I love that. That's more of that Mitt Romney. Hey, you cut it out. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, so yeah. it's we don't have to spend too long on this because it's not exactly mm. a robust proposal. It's just Amy Klobuchar trying desperately to find something that people could report on other than her eating salad with a comb or like yeah. throwing stuff at her staff. Embarrassing. Uh, which, you know, it, it makes her powerful. And that's a good thing, apparently, somehow, that she has the ability to do this. Yeah. But it's just worth pointing out that this is the very bottom of the barrel when it comes to what Democratic presidential candidates are putting out right now. Yeah, I wouldn't be impressed with her even if she came out with a good proposal today because the things that she's done previously have been just such nothing that I would only guess that she's jumping on some sort of bandwagon and therefore being disingenuous. Exactly. So what we'll do when we come back from this break is we're going to talk about candidates who have a much, much more robust base of support and could be real threats, really socialist view for labor in the next election. If you're listening to this on the radio, congratulations. It's the exact middle point of the work week. If that doesn't make you feel any better, try listening to more Punching Out. All our past shows are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Anita, and I'm here with Noah. Hi, y'all. And we're going to take some time to talk about another candidate who is actually kind of a serious contender in the Democratic Party, and that is Kamala Harris. Now, um, as far as labor practices go, um, it's not, it isn't so much that she's had such a direct impre- impact on labor specifically, but there have been controversies in the AG's office while she was in charge in California over the labor practices um, concerning inmates. And I think that's worth talking about because I think that kind of goes to the heart of maybe where she feels about labor or the labor of inmates in particular and what kind of uh, emphasis that she would be willing to put on labor in the future. So according to a Daily Beast article by Jackie Kucinich, entitled, AG Office Tried to Keep Inmates Locked Up for Cheap Labor. The people in question alleged that the AG's office was slow walking the uh, release of non, nonviolent low-level offenders in order to keep them around to combat the drought fire situation in California because, as it's well known, Many of the firefighters are actually inmates who are being, now this is less well-known, paid $2 a day to go out and fight fires. Fighting fires for $2 a day, um, I think that's deplorable at best. <laughs> um, it's sort of an embarrassment. And if, if you think Anita is being at all overselling this, yeah. this is the exact quote. Extending two-for-one credits to all minimum custody inmates at this time would severely impact fire camp participation, a dangerous outcome whole California is in the middle of a difficult fire season and severe drought. So yeah, that's literally what they did. I mean, that's what they said they were doing at the AG's office. Now, she has in, after that, prior to that, she had come out and said that she didn't really know about the policy or she actually, you know, disagrees with that policy and said not that they shouldn't have said it out loud. I find that <laughs> to be cold comfort. I mean, they are using these inmates as a labor substitute mm-hmm. so that they don't have to have trained firefighters uh, on the job during a very difficult time. When, honestly, this could be a good opportunity to have more and more people enter the, the labor force and become part of a union or become mm-hmm. a firefighter. And for at least a little bit of happy news in this regard as happy as it ever gets when it's a prison labor issue. Mm. Um, There was a federal panel that ordered the state to sit down with the plaintiffs, and eventually the state did agree to extend those credits. So in the end, the AG's office lost this one. But, you know, as Anita said, cold comfort. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about people who might have lost uh, a year or two of their lives just because of mm-hmm. their uh, the the office's refusal to want to let go of that nice, delicious free labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, it, it kind of speaks to where the country was built. And I'm sorry to keep bringing this up every single show almost that I'm on. 
But we have to remember that uh, free labor is not free labor, and it is what this country is built on, and there always seems to be an underclass. And I, I would like to point to the fact that we have incarcerated so many people of color. Mm -hmm. And now that we've covered this notable <laughs> lapse in uh, uh, supposedly progressive candidates' labor politics, yeah. we'd like to talk about actually something that's pretty great. Yeah, lift us up here. Um, <laughs> so for this, we are working from a New York Times article by, I think that's pronounced, Ested W. Herndon. Came out April 22nd, 2019. It is called, and I could not be more direct about this, Elizabeth Warren's Higher Education Plan. Cancel student debt and eliminate tuition. Yay. Sounds freaking great. And the crowd goes so, wild. <laughs> you're not kidding. Yeah. Um, so the basics of it. Under a hundred, if you if your household is worth under a hundred thousand dollars total, fifty thousand dollars of your student debt would go poof away. Mm -hmm. If it was anywhere between a hundred and two hundred fifty thousand dollars, it would be percentage based. I happen to run the numbers a little bit on this. At a hundred thousand, you would still get pretty much almost all of your uh, debt up to fifty thousand. At 150,000, it's about 75%, and at 200,000, it's about 50%. The numbers can get tweaked one way or the other, depending on what the debt was for, but those fractions hold pretty strong. That would help me out significantly. Same here. Personally, it would literally yes. uh, push me out of debt overnight. I think that's a beautiful thing. I, I, I envy you that even, <laughs> even in the abstract, um, Elizabeth Warren's plan would help you like so much and I think that that's wonderful but even for like that plan it wouldn't it wouldn't completely erase my debt but it would definitely take this burden off of me right you know I, I ran through based on the average amount of student debt which is somewhere on the order of $37,000 which mm -hmm. tons of people have a lot more of yeah but for a net worth of 100000 that would easily have or more than most people's that situation right there. And that's mm -hmm. extra money in your pocket every month, no questions asked. And from what I understand, the plan does have provisions to prevent it from becoming a tax burden on you later, which is the huge Good. disadvantage of current forgiveness programs. Good. She would also eliminate tuition of public colleges and universities, expand coverage under federal student aid for non-tuition expenses, ah. which is huge. Yes and create a $50 billion fund for historically black colleges and universities. The total like cost that. of the plan is estimated to be somewhere on the order of $1.25 trillion. It would be paid by a tax on the wealthiest and corporations that would generate about $2.75 trillion over 10 years. But the big point of this is that this is a plan funded for what we spend on a plane that catches itself on fire all the time. Are we talking about the Osprey or is uh, that the F-35? Oh, okay. Yeah, the, the biggest boondoggle in human history, okay. the large adult son of the Air Force uh -huh. and the Navy and the Marines. But oh, the fail this son. plan yes. would single-handedly <laughs> lift millions of Americans out of debt, reduce the debt of even more millions of Americans. Right. And make it easier for future generations of people to be to go to the grand majority of universities in the United States without having to leave with the crushing debt that several generations of people have now had to put up with. And if all of that isn't enough for you, like if you're like a stone-hearted, like cold individual who only cares about uh, GDP, let me tell you something. The liquidity of that money at the unleashing of that amount of money into the pockets of people who need it will instantly be spent on jeans, on food, on equipment, on people's vacations to different states. It will be spent. All of that is going back into the economy. Mm -hmm. And I am a deep believer that in this system that we have currently, that um, and I'm not a believer in that system, but I know that in this system that we have currently under under a capitalist society, you need to have demand for those goods. So when somebody says I need a pair of jeans and they go to the store and they buy them, eventually enough people buying jeans does necessitate that they need more people to be hired. That creates jobs. Mm -hmm. There's no arguing with that. 
There really isn't. It's basic Keynesian tech, uh, uh, economics. And it's particularly interesting that, so you felt the need to say, you know, you're not a deep believer in the system, no. which again, I think most <laughs> of us who host this podcast are not. I just want to be clear. <laughs> but I'll tell you who was a deep believer in the system is Elizabeth Warren. Hmm. Part of her narrative during this thing has been that she's a former free market Republican who right. truly believed that unfettered capitalism was the way forward. And over the years, she's begun to, uh, she says anyway, mm. she's begun to realize that you simply cannot leave capitalists to their own devices or they will do all the things that Karl Marx told us yes. going on 150 years ago. Uh, the man didn't lie. No. He was right. She's she's actually um, shown herself to be a lion of the Senate in a lot of ways. Uh, she takes these guys down a peg. She talks to people like Jamie Dimon the way we wish we could. <laughs> Um, you know, Very she really, she kind of backhanded everybody at Wells Fargo. They, they so deserve it. I, I like to see that because that kind of fervor uh, helps us to coalesce behind the idea that these people do not own us and we have somebody that's willing to backtalk them. I don't like her old record because she did, she was in with some shady characters, but I can't fault her for having a revelation or whatever. Mm -hmm. So she says, and, and, and. You know, becoming a recovering, uh, I guess you can call it free market Republican. So let's see where she goes with that. I, I like the direction she's taking, but, you know, and she still thinks you can fix this. Exactly. I mean, it's weird because so many of her proposals are left of what pretty much anybody in the party is suggesting. Mm -hmm. Her housing plan is incredibly ambitious. Mm -hmm. She's proposing universal child care. She's proposing reversing consolidation in agriculture. That's like a third rail in this country. Oh, you can't say that Conagra or Monsanto or any of these people don't deserve to have all the things that they have. And she's saying it. Yeah. So it's kind of um, incredible to watch somebody who self-defines as a recovering capitalist, yeah. as you put it, yeah. come out in favor of those things. She has the political capital to do that, though, because she's, um, she's I mean, in a lot of ways, you can say, hey, she's she used to be over there and now she's mm -hmm. one of these and there's no better uh, rallying cry to a cause than a defector. Absolutely true. Um, and then we're actually going to try and widen it out a little bit for there. Well, Elizabeth Warren has been putting out all of these proposals because she's running for president mm -hmm. and she's running for president on a policy record. Right. There are 40 Senate Democrats and 100 House Democrats who are supporting this thing called the PRO Act, Protecting the Right to Organize. Um, so this is this is a bill that I believe is currently still in the House. I don't know if it's passed yet. We're relying here on an article for New York Magazine by Sarah Jones, came out in May 3rd. And if you look at this article, I mean, it reads like a union's dream list. It repeals right-to-work laws and bans free writing, which is the thing that the Supreme Court, if you remember a previous episode of ours, just enshrined into law uh, through the Janus v. AFSCME decision oh, where they Janus. decided that you can, you, know, you can refuse to pay union dues because they might use it to, I don't know, support you. Other things that the PRO Act would do, um, it protects the right to intermittent strikes, which is when you do kind of shorter-term walkouts, mm -hmm. and secondary strikes. So it protects the right of other unions to join your strike and also refuse to provide their labor to break your strike or interrupt it. It bans replacing strikers. It bans force arbitration, which already means Neil Gorsuch is very angry that this bill exists. Mm. It bans meetings with, quote-unquote, captive audiences. It broadens the definition of employee. It lets the National Labor Relations Board assess damages and hold corporate officers personally responsible. So not as part of the corporation and you sue the corporation. No, John Smith, senior vice president is held personally liable for these violations. Oh, and by the way, it also allows you to sue for labor law violations in civil court rather than only in criminal court. It requires arbitration of contracts, which I don't understand who's doing it. I'm guessing it's the National Labor Relations Board. But if you can't agree on a first contract, then it has to be arbitrated. It can't just – you can't just hold over the old CBA and it forces companies to recognize a card check union, which was something that the Obama administration was supposed to do. Mm. 
Unfortunately, it only requires them to do that if you can prove that management interfered with the union election, which I guess is supposed to be kind of a like a backdoor scare tactic. Yeah. You better not interfere because then you will have to recognize the car check union. Yeah, and I, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like um, uh, closing the barn doors doors out of, after the horses get out, right? Yeah. I mean, like, look what just happened with our you know nationwide election. They're still working on that. But I do think that telling somebody, oh, well, we'll check afterwards after you had your election, <laughs> and, and if they get caught, then yeah, it just yeah. seems like it's not a real threat, honestly. Well, you know, it's the Democrats. They couldn't, they, they couldn't put out a bill like this without managing to screw up some percent of it, you yeah. know? Yeah, they like to pull punches. Yeah. They really do. But I do think that it is heartening, encouraging, to see a bill like this getting pushed in a presidential, in what is almost a presidential election year. Now, obviously, the Democrats can afford to do this because the Senate is Republican and the president is Republican. So They know it's not going to move anywhere. After, exactly. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, I think that that's, I mean, they're just basically saying that we have a desire to do X, Y, and Z, and that's, that's actually quite admirable. But it would be uh, unsurprising to find out that some people who are on board with this really wouldn't have proposed it themselves, but would have uh, waited until an, you know an election or a year when they are not in power in order to sort of uh, let their freak flag fly and then rein it back in when it yeah. becomes that they actually have to do the things that they're saying they will. For sure, yeah. I think the the only counterpoint that can meaningfully be offered to that is that I do think the current Democratic caucus in the House, just the Democratic electorate is left of where it was in 2006 or 2008. And I think what you're seeing is that the House and Senate composition of the Democratic caucus reflects that. They're they're left of where they used to be. And sure, there's still a lot of things to extirpate from this caucus in terms of corporate-friendly or business-friendly thinking. But I think they've had to – even some of those people have had to recognize that this is not the Democratic Party that, you know, like had like former NFL players who were basically Republicans in all but name running to be Speaker of the House. This is not the party of NAFTA. This is not the party of PAYGO. And it's, yeah, and it's not the party of Bart Stupak either, yeah. thank God. Uh, I, I think that Nancy Pelosi is not the best leadership we could have, but all of the people challenging were challenging from the right, so I wasn't having any of that. Um, but we can uh, get somebody new and um, to be leadership, and I, I really think that we need to jettison this generation where they still think it's okay to take all this corporate money and that they can pretend that it somehow doesn't color their vote or just not care whether it colors their vote. Right. So No, that that's absolutely true. The one of the big things that's happening and it's gonna cause a lot of tension is a generational shift. Yeah. Um you've got voters coming in who have never really known the supposed the the, the pro labor Democratic Party of old. They've never seen it in action because mm-hmm. it hasn't existed right. for forty years, and or actually closer to fifty now. And they they're beginning to see the green shoots of maybe a resurgent labor movement with some real mm-hmm. political heft in it. And I think it's unironically a good thing to see 40 Senate Democrats, even in a year where they don't have control of Congress, to see a majority of the Senate Democratic Caucus and a large portion of the Democratic House Caucus Mm -hmm. saying, we're going to back this law that, again, reads like the dream list for a union. I mean, that's a good sign. And here's hoping that there's many more to come in that regard. Yeah, I mean, even if we just get a few of those proposals passed in in the in provisions in that act passed, which you know, of course, there's going to be a lot of horse trading on mm-hmm. its way up. Um, even if we have a fully, you know, a Democratic-controlled Senate and and presidency next year, or sorry, twenty twenty, it's um, it's still very likely that some things are going to get uh, you know watered down, cherry picked out. But the bones of this act are extremely good. And I think that we should move forward with that and uh, encourage more people to get on board with this because um, the more people that you hold their feet to the fire on this early, um, the harder it is going to be for them to back away when it comes time to actually pay the piper 
and actually give unions, give labor what they've been promising. Mm -hmm. Now, you may have noticed that during the past 45 minutes, there's one presidential candidate we haven't been talking about. Oh, who's that? Yeah, well, we're going to talk about (laughs) him and about why things like the PRO Act and Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Warren's plans are such a good idea for the Democratic Party when we come back from this break. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm still Noah, and I'm still joined by Anita. Hi, everybody. And so over the course of the last two segments, we've covered, I think, like, nine Democratic presidential candidates, but we've left someone out. Who is that, Anita? That would be Senator Bernard Sanders. Congratulations to those of you who have lasted the previous 45 minutes because you're going to wait for us to get to him. Mm -hmm. So why are we talking about Bernie Sanders this time around? Well, because he's running again, Uh and he has a powerhouse campaign. He really does. Um, Among other things, he's, I believe, his campaign staff is the first to ever be unionized which if you want a test of a candidate's Uh. loyalties to labor, I mean, that right there is kind of a big one. Yeah. Um, And he he, uh, had a couple of snafus in the last time, and he fixed them. Uh, The things about uh, protecting women in the uh workforce, um, he had such a loose sort of confederation of people um, working, uh, you know, ragtag teams here and there across the country last time that a lot of times some, Naughty characters, uh, you know, some of them got swept up into it and started doing some shady stuff. And then when Bernie found out about it, he was like, well, this time around, we're going to make sure that everybody knows that we're treating women equally. We're making sure that everybody's protected. That's important to me. No, 100%. I think it's, again, if you want a test of a candidate's loyalties to labor, Mm -hmm. I think on the left, we often conflate professionalism with... Uh, sort of being staid and boring. Right. And I think what Bernie's showing by doing this kind of stuff is that you don't have to you don't have to obey some kind of like specific model of professionalism to just be ethical. Yeah. To just like actually treat people that work for you well. Yeah. And that's really important. It's also dynamic. It, that, he mm-hmm. he made this decision. They made this decision and I think it was the right one because it really shows his commitment to the entire project. And I do sincerely mm-hmm. believe that this movement was already 100% going with or without Bernie Sanders, but he is an excellent uh, leader for this. Um, I really do believe he's stuck to his uh, same proposals for years and years. He's always pretty much uh, been in, of one mind about labor and protecting workers' rights and unions so I think it would be really hard for anyone else to take up the mantle of Bernie Sanders without having already come out of this movement. Yeah. And he just made it, mm. as of three days ago, he made it even harder to take that mantle away from him. Now, we're looking here at an article by Eric Levitz. Uh, it's once again, New York Magazine, It three days ago, May 29th. The title is... Uh, In appeal to moderates, Bernie calls for worker ownership, there's a hyphen there for some reason, of means of production. And what he's actually talking about is that Bernie Sanders is working on a plan that would require large businesses, because in this country we have to worship the small business tyrant, but whatever, to require large businesses to regularly contribute a portion of stocks to a fund that would be controlled by employees, and then that fund would pay out a regular dividend to the workers. It does note that some models of this fund increase the ownership stake of employees in the company, which eventually would turn them into a voting stakeholder. Right now, the idea is very much in its formative stages. And Sanders also mentioned that similar to Elizabeth Warren proposing this last year, he's also going to introduce a plan that would force companies to allow workers to have a seat on the board of directors for a company. We actually talked about that a few episodes back. I can't give you the number off the top of my head, but I believe it was called the code determinator. That's what Ah, it was called. Anyway, again, these are both plans that are unequivocal goods within the American system. Uh, Companies are bound 
legally by actual judicial precedent to do nothing but increase shareholder value. So that makes it very hard to do things like we talked about uh, with Amazon, I think, uh, I think a couple weeks ago now, to present resolutions that aim to get companies to take climate change seriously or to improve labor relations. But right. if you make the employees a voting block that has some power in those shareholder meetings, then they can say what shareholder value is to them. Yeah, like there's a value to me where I like clean drinking water and um, there's a value to me where I really like being able to go outside and, and breathe clean air. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, if you're a worker who lives near your factory, you also deserve that right. So if you were a stakeholder in the company that was uh, polluting, like there was no end, um, you would probably vote to take measures to mitigate that. And I think that that's the kind of thing we're talking about. If you had to put a fine point on it, it would be things like that a lot of times. Also, making money off of you know owning, owning stock or part of the company would be nice. And not a lot of people have the op option to have stock in their own company. So co-op would offer people um, not only more control as workers, but it would possibly even offer them stock dividends. Right. I, I remember reading ages ago that one of the things that was kind of shocking about the Enron scandal when it happened was that Enron employees, famously, a lot of their retirement plans, uh, things like uh, their mortgages and so on, a lot of their collateral, basically, the, the stuff that they were relying on mm -hmm. was Enron stock uh, that for decades the employees who were there would actually just get part of their salary paid in stock, part of their uh, retirement right. uh, savings would be in Enron stock and whatever. But of course, the difference there was that they didn't know something that executives did, which right. is they knew they didn't know what the performance of the company was. They didn't know that the company was one giant three-card Monty game mm -hmm. and that the moment somebody else found that out, the entire place was going to go up like, you know, Yeah, like a firewood. book of matches or whatever, yeah. There you go. Uh, well, they didn't have a seat at the table. Exactly. Uh, they did not have any idea what was going on at the top. And meanwhile, it was just all basically pyramid scheme after pyramid scheme. So um, I think it's good. I think, you know, what Bernie is proposing is obviously uh, going to help out common worker. Everybody in the country is going to benefit from this because once one company is forced to do X, Y, Z, um, and you must force them, I have to keep harping on that. Mm -hmm. They will never be able to make a moral uh, moral judgment call when it comes to these sort of things because they have to increase profit. Right. So um, when you're dealing with this kind of amoral system, um, not immoral, not moral, but amoral system, then you have to corral it. It is our duty as citizens to make sure that we corral these people, that they are regulated, and that people are held accountable. I like that part. Yeah, and I think it's somewhat perceptive to offer a plan like this in a time of increasing corporate consolidation because it basically it it, it does the right thing in that it punishes you for getting bigger. Some uh, a company like Amazon can say, "Oh, well, we'll make the wage floor fifteen dollars," or Walmart, mm -hmm. I think, is doing the same yeah. thing. And if they're doing that, it's because it's not going to cut too much into their profits to do so. But if you tell them, no, no, now the the value that you are creating on the stock market as a publicly traded company, now that has to go back to your employees, a portion of that. You have to actually directly contribute to their generating wealth. I think that's going to be a lot more offensive to the executive class. And as a result, <laughs> well, most things that are offensive to the executive class are good things for the rest of us. Yeah, and I mean, I think that there are a lot of people out there that are going to be satisfied with that. Like, who's going to just stop wanting to make money just because they know that some other people are also going to make money? Like, I thought that that was the whole trickle-down economics kind of thing. And I say it in that funny verse because, uh, obviously, I don't believe in it. But if the point is, is that in this society that we're working under, if these executives are still getting richer while they're also making money slash, you know, uh, giving more uh, rights and benefits to their workers, I don't think that there's anyone alive that's going to say no to that. I, I, I just think that that's um, sort of a red herring argument that people make up that they think that, well, companies will just go overseas or something. 
Ding, ding, ding. Well, guess what? Everybody is going overseas already. So if they had the wherewithal to up and move, they would have. I mean, everything at Walmart's made somewhere else. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's a non-argument. And if anything, companies, one of the odd bits of development over the past few years is that the fact that now in other economies, workers are standing up for themselves and making it more expensive for companies to abuse them means that things that used to be done overseas are now coming back to the U.S. Yeah, that's So correct. that should tell you something about the labor situation here, which is that American workers have been beaten down so much over the past 30, 40 years, mm -hmm. that American corporations finally feel okay coming back. And I think it's our job to remind them that, A, they never should have left, mm -hmm. but B, that we haven't forgotten. Yeah. Um, and actually, it's funny you mentioned trickle-down economics because obviously that's always the justification for it's tax ridiculous. cuts. <laughs> oh, and um, right next on the sidebar to this article, the, it, this is amazing. There's a headline. Study finds Trump tax cuts failed to do anything but give rich people money. Go figure. That's what everyone who wasn't in the administration I'm said it would do. Yeah, I'm shocked. This is my shocked face. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's, no, I, so I, can't, I mean, hello. I, I don't know how I'm talking normally right now because I have to pick my jaw up off the floor. He's doing well. You should see him. It's guys. very difficult, but I'm I'm <laughs> hustling through it. Well, it just it goes to show you that this is never really about uh, this is never really about uplifting the worker. It, what Trump proposed and what the Republicans proposed was nothing more than a last last ditch cash grab because they know they killed the golden goose back in the eighties. I mean, they set when they set free all the regulations in in, in the in the nineteen eighties during the Reagan era, mm -hmm. and they stopped regulating, and they and they made sure that corporations could be uh, disgustingly rich and treat their workers like crap. They destroyed what built the middle class, and they also subsequently destroyed what would continue to make them money in the future. So they actually really did, in my opinion, they killed the golden goose. And they know there's only a few leg mm -hmm. eggs left, and they got to come collect them. So yeah. that's what that was. They're, I mean, they're at the doing arson for insurance money stage. Mm. Now, Anita, we talked about this a little bit off air, but once again, the title of the article is "An Appeal to Moderates." Bernie calls for worker ownership of means of production, and I believe we talked it's about so how weird. that's not quite right. No, it and it's a strange, it's a strange, uh, you know, title for an article in a lot of ways because an appeal to moderates. Let's see. Um, what's going to scare moderates away faster than Marxism? Mm -hmm. uh, let's be honest here. Yeah, they don't read uh, all the things that you know we might be privy to usually, and they're put off by the idea of seizing the means of production. Um, I think that when you use that kind of language, you know who you're talking to. So mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, yes, this might excite people who are leftists, but it also might. You know, it's not going to be an appeal to moderates. Moderates want to hear stuff like Amy Klobuchar making bipartisan nicey nice and giving all of our stuff away. <laughs> That's what moderates want. I think so. The article makes the point mm -hmm. that the reason it's an appeal to moderates is because it doesn't do it. It doesn't do the the actual thing that the moment you say the words increase taxes, you know, your yeah. your moderate runs away immediately because. You know, one day that might be me, and I wouldn't want to pay taxes through well, the nose. What is that phrase that people say? Um, small business owners or 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 capitalists are just um, uh, they're just currently uh, temporarily embar embarrassed. Temporarily embarrassed that was millionaires. The oh, sorry, quote yeah. about the poor. Yeah, yeah, I, I screwed up the quote, but yeah, that's exactly what it is. I mean, like, oh no, I might someday hit the lottery and be a billionaire, so I can't have someone tax me. So what the writer of the article is suggesting is that the reason this is a pragmatic appeal is because this, instead of selling it as we're going to increase taxes on the rich, which you hope to find yourself among someday, uh -huh. it's we believe that you know how to invest your employer's income better than your boss does and that that would be an easier sell to the American working and middle classes, which I, I agree. It's a better sell. I, I think it's better true pitch. because mm -hmm. quite frankly, in my experience up here, because I'm not originally from around here, um, in my experience up here, Americans absolutely love being told that they know better than somebody else what to do. Yeah, well, this is like the tip of the rust belt up here. Mm -hmm. And we, up in Rochester, we had industry up the wazoo, and now it's gone. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I drive down here and I see a bunch of abandoned factories and I know tons of people who used to work for the big companies that were in this place and they have all been shipped overseas. All their jobs mm-hmm. are gone. Or the company, the big one, just it imploded and only yep. it's uh, a couple of its child companies have survived. So yeah, these people think they're smarter than than their bosses and because they probably wrong. are. Yeah. <laughs> they probably are. They're absolutely not wrong. But I don't even know if it's the, if I think it's the age old argument of are we dealing with stupidity or are we dealing with evil? You know what I mean? In a lot of ways, I think that it's just out and out, like I'm going to take mine and get out of here. Yes. And I don't care what happens to these people. And that's not stupidity. That really is just, you know, being a bad guy. It can sometimes be that. Or I it think in a lot of ways, it's just, <laughs> what we're forced into we Mm -hmm. we're put into a world that doesn't give you a lot of rules to survive other than you need to be faster you never need to outrun the bear right in the the world that we've been put in you need to outrun the slower guy yeah and i think in that sense it it kind of works in that regard um but i think the the thing that strikes me about using this very marxist language to talk about something that's ultimately nordic model socialism like it's not Mm -hmm. it it, you know this is not stalinism this is not trotskyism this is not maoism this is not any of the like grandiose marxist theories Mm. uh this is just like regulating capitalism to some degree but what strikes me about this is that you know i i've been aware of what american politics are like electorally speaking since about 2008. And in that time, I don't think I've ever seen a Democrat that the Republican Party couldn't call socialist. Yeah. Um, it doesn't true. matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter how pro-life they were. In 2008, yeah. it doesn't matter how anti-gay they were, yeah. which was still a thing. It doesn't matter how anti-government they were, how libertarian they were, how much they disagreed with the rest of the Democratic Party on anything. As long as they were running against a Republican, they were still communist, which was basically the term for illegitimate. Yeah, it's just... um. I like to think about how they called Obama a socialist. And then, (laughs) yeah, I mean, it's it's a laughable proposal. I mean, he took moderate Republican uh, legislation and pushed it, and they were against it. And what does that tell you as a leftist? That tells you that if they're going to put all of the Democrats into the same boat, and they're going to say, this all over here is socialism, then why would you choose an Amy Klobuchar when you have people that are further to the left? No offense, Amy, you're just not my candidate. Um, and you're a terrible and boss. And you're a terrible boss. Uh, go eat your salad. Um, <laughs> but no, why in the world would you pick someone who's milk toast and making bipartisan nicey-nice with these Republicans? They're talking about destroying labor. They've made multiple attempts to make it impossible to organize in this country. And... Generally speaking, um, no matter who has a D after their name in that election, Republicans will not be voting for them. Now, Mm -hmm. there are people that will cross over for labor reasons, though. And that's where the good part about Bernie Sanders' campaign comes into play when when you're talking numbers. So he does bring out the base of the Democratic Party, and he brings out progressives, and no matter what, uh, none of the moderates are going to vote for Trump, right? Because nobody is that crazy in the Democratic Party to say, the, this is too left for me, I'm voting for Trump. But you will also garner support from disaffected Republicans who previously bought into Trump's fake populist rhetoric about bringing jobs back. And while I'm a little bit more skeptical of that, what I will say is that if you're somebody who's listening to this and you're a moderate Democrat or you're kind of worried. Oh, they were scared away when you said Trotsky. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Um, but if you've been holding out, congratulations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you might be a little bit scared by leftier policy proposals and you might be a little bit scared that those are, you know, the, the socialism of the yeah. proposals is going to mess with voters and make them unpalatable and whatnot. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter how moderate the proposals get they're still going to call them communists. You might as well load up for bear, Mm -hmm. get in there, and scrap it out because, honestly, you don't have a lot to lose by doing that. No, you don't. And I think that that's a take-home message, and thank you for saying so. And on that note, we hope we've given you a little bit of a look at what the Democratic field is currently proposing for labor and reasons why your vote should be influenced 
by how they see workers. So I'm Noah. And I'm Anita. And this was Punching Out. Bye, y'all. Bye. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.